All right. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, look at uh, yes. I was going to say I was looking for a recording angel, and yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> I am good to go. All right. This is uh, class four uh, on uh, angels, demons, spiritual warfare. Uh, we are in class two of our our study of Satan and demons. This would be. Um, part two of that, it'll be a part three coming up next Sunday. Uh, just had to expand. I just got more notes than I can get through. And so um, we'll see how far we get today, and we'll just pick it up next week. The main goal of, of today, and I think, I think it's fascinating to me, and hopefully very very insightful for you and actually helpful in your walk with the Lord, is that uh, tonight and next Sunday night is that we're, we're going to be examining more strategies, almost trying to un unmask how Scripture describes Satan and demons and how they go about their business, and I think the more we can understand that, the more that can be kind of exposed to us, the more we can be aware of what's happening around us and, and more more alert to those kind of things. So that's what we're going to do. Um, we'll pick up a little bit from last time together. I didn't get a chance to finish on some uh, names of demons, and then we'll go from there, okay? Any questions before we get started? Excellent. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to study this uh, this course and this material. Lord, we acknowledge that this uh, spiritual realm that is a reality all around us is sometimes, because it is impossible to see many times, it's uh, uh, difficult sometimes to grasp or sometimes even think about much. And uh, yet, God, uh, you've, you've got a universe filled with helpers called angels for us, God. You've got, uh, at the same time, we have an enemy who's very interested in our failure, very interested in, uh, in deterring in any, in any way the, the proclamation and advancement of the gospel through us. And I pray, God, that you would make us alert to those kind of things. Uh, help us to be vigilant to uh, pursue you and love you, uh, God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and trusting that you are our sovereign king. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Jumping right in. All right. Names. Uh, what are some names for demons? Now, this is uh, picked up from last time because I didn't get a chance to finish this with you. Um, kind of look at what, kind of taking all the scripture and kind of pulling those those titles together. Again, the descriptions as it was with angels, uh, a lot of times the names help help us understand a little bit of nature and activity um, of, of them. Um, so the first, first name is demons we'll find there. This title is used um, over 76 times in scripture. And uh, you would not, um, by the way, you not find, as you look throughout scripture, you won't find the title devils. Um, sometimes you hear people talk about demons as devils. Uh, that actually doesn't exist in Scripture. Uh, Satan is called the devil, but there is no little devils running around. All right, so the pitchfork and the you know barbed barbed tail and things like that, and burnt skin, that doesn't exist in Scripture. That title is not there. Uh, you find um, again the most most common occurrence in Scripture uh, for demons is the word demons. We find here one example in Luke ten seventeen. It says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is when the, the 72 were sent out and came back uh, in astonishment of, of uh, really the power that God had given to them. Another term that's used, which shouldn't be shocking to us by going through our study on angels, is that they are called angels. Uh, remember, we already looked at this, but what they are is more of fallen angels. They are once, it implies, the title itself implies that once they were um, a, a, a collection of, uh, of holy angels, uh, but now we have... Um, uh, because of the fall, we have them uh, as, as different kinds of angels. Again, same nature, though. Um, Matthew 25, 41, speaking of, of the reality of eternity apart from Christ, hell, it says, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There we see that kind of relationship between Satan and, and demons. They call it his, 
It implies his control uh, over them and his uh, kind of commissioning, as it were, of them as well. Another passage that says this, uh, Revelation 12, 7. It says Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So there we have that, uh, both Michael as the archangel and the other angels, it kind of implies he has kind of direct orders over. We'll look at, look at later on in our course, before we end, kind of more of the... Um, how just like the angels were organized, it seems, and structured, we find Satan and demons are also uh, organized in a similar fashion. All right? Uh, C, there, we have uh, unclean spirit or unclean demon is a phrase that's used uh, in Scripture 24 different times. Uh, the term spirit is usually in the Scriptures qualified by an adjective to indicate the activity or nature of that particular demon. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but I don't believe these titles are exhaustive. I mean, I don't think this is like all the titles that exist, or um, but though they are accurate and put in Scripture. Matthew 10.1 says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over, here it is, unclean spirits to cast them out. Also, Luke 4, verse 33, speaks of a spirit of an unclean demon. Again, this, the unclean adjective is describing, obviously, their, um, their fallenness, um, their, uh, their fall from, from, uh, from grace, as it were, uh, and no longer uh, in God's, God's presence in that way. Uh, letter D, evil spirit, again, speaking to their nature and their intentions. This title is used ten different times in Scripture. We find uh, Luke 7, verse 21 is one of those references. And it says, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues, and here it is, evil spirits, and on many were, who were blind, he bestowed sight. Another description we find there, E, mutant, deaf spirit. Um, this speaks uh, to certain, actually what's interesting and kind of fascinating, as we saw with angels, this speaks to certain demons who you could say almost specialize in a certain area. Um, these specialize in this particular area. It doesn't mean everyone who is mute or deaf has a demonic spirit. That's not what I'm saying. Is that what you were going to ask? No. <laughs> okay. What were you going to ask? I was going to ask, um, back to the unclean spirit or unclean demon. Does yes. the word unclean have... Give us any clues to, is that a, what the behavior is? No, I think, yeah, I think it more of is, a, is a, a describing fallen nature, almost like evil and unclean are kind of parallels, right? Evil spirit, unclean spirit, unclean Old Testament phrases. Uh, if you were unclean, right, you were unfit to come into the presence of God. And, you know, that's why the, all the sacrifices and all the things the priest, high priest had to do before he could even enter in. And so, yeah, it's speaking of that separation from God, I think. So it could be any number of things. Right. Um, here we have uh, Mark 9, verse 25. Um, it says here, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. So there's some description here of a particular, he, he gives him an adjective, a mute and deaf spirit, who particularly worked in this particular person. Um, another one we find in scripture is uh, deceitful, Spirit. This explains again a little bit more. This now is not just not just nature. Now this is getting more towards tactics, right? And uh, approach. Uh, deceit is a very a very common um, tactic used by Satan and his demons. We find First Timothy four one, where it says um, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. In teachings of demons, as we've mentioned before, on that verse, it does not mean that they are jumping into Satanism, it just means that any kind of false teaching or false doctrine 
is being supported and being pushed and being energized by demonic activity. And that's why he calls it here deceitful spirits. Obviously deceitful meaning probably implying that they're not intending and thinking that, oh man, I'm going into Satanism, right? It's more of a, it's deceitful in that it looks good on the outside, has some form of religion. Um, another one is uh, G there, lying spirit. This is a, a really interesting one. Now we're going to find some passages that I'm honestly not going to be able to give you a, probably a satisfying answer to some of these, um, but I'll give you my best shot at it. Okay, this is uh, the lying spirit. Maybe you recognize this one. This is from uh, 1 Kings 22. A little bit longer passage, 19 through 23. And here we have, uh, Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. All right, stop there. That's very similar to the story of Job, right? Remember Job 1, Job 2, where the, the council of angels and demons even, Satan was there in the presence, almost like a, a council being held here. And he says, And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall? at Ramoth Gilead. And one said one said one thing, another said another, and then a spirit came forward and stood stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed, go out and do so. Now therefore behold the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these pro all these are prophets, the Lord has declared disaster for you. Now that one just seems to pose all kinds of problems, doesn't it? Um, the context of that is you have Ahab trying to form almost an alliance uh, with uh, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat insisted on, uh, on first consulting a prophet of God to get God's perspective. Should we, should we go do this battle? Should we not? Ahab gathered 400 of his own prophets, which were not God's prophets, or his own people, to consult them about, hey, should we attack them or should we not? And um, Jehoshaphat consulted the prophet here uh, of God, and the prophet of God, you know, told him no. Uh, his, uh, uh, his prophets were led by what it says a spirit that volunteered. We're, I think we're to imply that this is a, a demonic spirit, not an angelic spirit. I don't think an angelic, uh, a pure spirit is going to go be a lying uh, spirit. I don't think that's a proper adjective probably to give to a holy angel. And so we are, we are left to kind of come up with the fact that this is a, this is a lying spirit. This is a, this is a demon who goes in and lies and, and leads all these prophets to speak falsehood, all right? So, again, similar to, to Job, uh, we have both full, fallen and holy angels there in a council and being sent out even by God to perform. Even, and the interesting thing theologically is that even, again, as we looked at in Job, Satan and demons are still under the authority of God. They're not living out some um, autonomous life where God is somehow shackled by what they do and trying to make up for that. There's theological circles that will give you like this openness of God theory, which is basically God's kind of, he's really, really strong, and he's trying to fix all the problems in the world that people make and demons make, and he's kind of reacting to everything. That's not the case. We don't find that in Scripture. We find a much more um, sovereign God than that that, again, gives us passages like this that make us scratch our head a little bit, but um, there you go. All right, spirit of, of divination is another one we find in Scripture. Uh, letter H, um, and remember, so though demons aren't omniscient, we looked at this already, right? They, they know many things, but they're not all-knowing, right? Just like they're powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. Um, and so we find here that they are, but we find that they're excellent students of human nature. I've given you that book um, by C.S. Lewis to read um, that kind of gives you a little bit of that idea. They're very, very smart, very much have studied humankind, 
Um, and, and so there is a, there's a sense where, because of that, there's a sense of even future things that may be able to predict, just based on human nature and based on experience. That doesn't mean that they know the future. I don't think there's any implication in Scripture that they know it, but they can also be pretty crafty in that way, and even maybe you guess it would be correct. And we find this uh, in Acts 16, verse 16. We're going to a place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit, here it is, of divination, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So there was a future-telling, a future aspect uh, of what was going to happen and things like that. And we, again, we find the source behind those kind of even modern-day fortune-telling is demonic in nature, um, not necessarily God-driven in the, that way. Along with that one is uh, letter I. We find, <coughs> sorry, this uh, fortune and destiny. Uh, very interesting description here in uh, Isaiah 65, 11. It says, you who forsake the Lord, who forget, forget my holy mountain, who set a table for, and here it's capitalized to give us that description, fortune, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. These were false gods. These were demonic in nature. As we talked about already, Isaiah describes that there is no other god besides God. There is no other that exists. And here we find these false gods being demonic in nature. Uh, they seem to prey upon people's hopes and dreams for the future. We're assuming that's what that means, future fortune and destiny. So demons are very much involved in preying upon that aspect of human nature. Okay? Uh, letter J, this is um, rulers, authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces. You'll find, actually, if you remember back in our study on angels, these titles are very similar. Again, they imply a sense of rank, a sense of order, a sense of organization that they, uh, they have. Um, we find uh, Ephesians 6, 12, a good description of this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's like a, a list that Paul gives of demonic activity. He gives them titles, implying by the titles some sort of organization and structure and rank um, in that way. Okay. Uh, letter K, another interesting one that I may not give you a satisfying answer to. Sons of God or gods. Uh, this takes us back to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, verse 4, um, we find this description, which is interesting if you've come across this. A man, began, uh, a man began to multiply on the face of the earth, or land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, there's a lot. I, I'm gonna give you an answer, but I'm just gonna tell you. I, I don't know if it's the right one. Um, so they, um, we find here these now these sons of God is a reference going back. If you go to Job one and two, you'll find the same reference. Okay, that they were clearly demonic uh, spirits in Job one and Job two. So just cross referencing that. And and also, by the way, Job is the oldest, even though it's not in the middle, not at the beginning of the Bible, is the oldest. Uh, book in terms of chronological uh, time period. It's taking place probably around the times of um, Abraham, probably is about the time Job's character would have ex been in existence. But we find here that they were either these men, they were either demon-possessed men, or they were demons themselves, right? One or the other, and there's all kinds of like arguments for either one. I'm not going to really get into great detail about which one. I think either way, the point was that obviously Satan was hard at work um, in uh, corrupting the human race, trying to destroy 
the promised birth of the Messiah that was given back in Genesis 3. And so we find Genesis 6, he, there, he's already active. He was active in Genesis 6. Obviously, though he's not mentioned in, in Genesis 4 with Cain, uh, we're very much implied because J Jesus says in John 8 that Satan is a, what, a murderer, right? Going back, it's referencing back to probably um, Genesis 4. And then we find him again here in Genesis 6. So demonic activity constantly we see right at the very beginning of Scripture. Okay? Um, we find another reference to this, this title here in Psalm 82.1. God has taken his place in the divine council. There's again, there's our scene again. You find a couple places in, like this. Job, um, as we just saw a little while ago, we saw that, um, I can't remember the passage we were in just a second ago. Um, so we saw it in Job 1 and 2. We saw this, we see this council in um, kind of like Zechariah 3 as well. We see this, we see it here in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Little g. Um, there's a description here of uh, the setting is, again, God is heavenly council, uh, similar to Job and Zechariah. Uh, in the passage, the whole psalm, they're said to die like men in the future. Uh, these fallen angels, they, they stand accused of aiding and abetting uh, the wicked and their exploitation, curiously enough, of exploitation of the poor and powerless. And so these, they're being judged um, because they're actually um, taking advantage of, of the, uh, the poor and the powerless. And so the psalmist seems to be implying that the promotion of like inequity, the, the promotion of injustice in our world is not sheerly human run, it is also demonically influenced. And I think that's what the passage is going to teach us, is that there's demonic influence even behind um, a lot of the uh, brokenness in social structures that go on uh, throughout our world. Okay? All right. Uh, letter L, hosts. This is, uh, we find this in uh, Isaiah uh, 24, 21 to 22. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit and they will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. So we find the, the host of heaven being punished. Obviously that doesn't imply holy angels, that's fallen angels. There they are again. Um, and so we find them, um, uh, the de these demons are in some way allied with the kings of various nations. All right? This echoes a little bit back to the book of Daniel, we saw that a little bit, right? The king of Persia and the kings of Greece, and there was, a, there was some implication those were demonic um, spirits. Similar here, uh, we find, find them involved in that way throughout the whole chapter of Isaiah 24. So demons are active in government, um, active in different nations even. Now, some very interesting ones, and again, I'm only giving you what, what, I, what I found in Scripture, and this one may seem interesting or different to you, like the goat demon. Um, but it's there. I'll give you a few passages. Uh, Leviticus 17, 7. says, they show no more, um, so, so they show no more sacrifice their sacrifices to, and here he calls it, goat demons. Um, we also find them in 2 Chronicles 11, verse 15. He appointed his own priests for the high places, and for the goat idols, and for the calves that he had made. Um, the, the reference uh, here is to literally the, it says goat idols, is actually the word is, he, it just means uh, hairy ones, or he goat, actually, is what it is. Um, it's, uh, it's actually interesting enough, if you're interested in sci-fi stuff here, or mythology, I guess, uh, the satire, the half goat, half man in Greek mythology, comes from this phrase, is where that even came from. Um, others suggest that these are, again, these are, these are goat demons, goat idols, they're false gods, 
uh, that they sacrifice to. It's interesting that the modern modern occult activity, uh, satanic activity, and in, in its in its very um, visible form is always connected to some kind of goat. If you ever noticed that before, um, again it goes all the way back to Leviticus of some of that um, there. All right, and then another fascinating one: desert creature. Okay. Uh, Isaiah thirteen, verse twenty-one says, "The desert creatures will lie down, and their houses will be full of owls." Now, within that, now at, at first read, that just sounds like some animal, you know, out there. Um, I didn't give you the whole entire context of that, but the whole context, and, and most even commentators will tell you that there's some kind of, this is more of a demonic creature and not just a, an animal that's there. Another passage like that is Isaiah 34, 14, the desert creatures will meet with the wolves, the hairy goats, there's that same word that was used back in Leviticus, also will cry to its kind, yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. Um, the reference is to a, a word, and I'll, I'll, t I'll write it up here just because I didn't, I didn't put it on the screen. Um, L-I-L-I-T-H, Lilith, is the, is the Hebrew word that's there. It also became in Isaiah 34, 14. Did she um, also have a son or something that was supposed to... You find a lot of the Greek mythology and even Jewish mythology spun out of these kind of references, actually. Um, this was called a, um, a, a female night demon is what they came in. Jewish, Jewish culture began to understand this as. Um, Judaism had its own, just like I told you in our study of angels, they had their own kind of names for angels that they had given holy angels. They also had names for fallen angels and demons. This is one of them. It comes from this passage. Um, this is a particular demon that was said to seduce men in their dreams. Uh, it was one who murdered young children, was a special threat at childbirth. That was this, this particular demon um, that they argued for. And so we find that there's some sort of indication of, of uh, even uh, demons taking the form of creatures. There's a lot of parallels to that in these passages, too. We find another reference like this in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Revelation 18.2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. There's some sort of correlation between a dwelling place of demons and some sort of animals that even correlate to that, which goes back again to Leviticus, speaking about the, the demon. Interesting enough, Jesus in Matthew 12, again gives us a little bit of description of, of this kind of spirit. When the unclean spirit goes out uh, of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I return to my house, which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order, and then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day the person is worse than the first. Now, the particular application or point of this passage is Satan is, um, is actually Jesus talking to the religious uh, leaders who had, uh, he was describing them, and remember Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs, they look good on the outside, full of dead men's bones. Um, when someone becomes a, a convert of theirs, they actually become worse off than they, than they were. They clean it up. Uh, is the idea, but they become more, much more suspect to, um, because they just clean the outside, they become more suspect and vulnerable, is what Jesus is going after. But the whole point here at the beginning, this whole passes through waterless places seeking rest, it's a very interesting. When you take that along with the other concepts of desert creatures and, and places of, uh, of desolation, you find it's interesting in scripture, you find that water uh, is usually symbolized as kind of God's blessing. And, um, and the opposite of that is dry, 
desert places, right? You can go through, especially the prophets, and you find that kind of correlation between water and blessing and desert and dry land and God's absence. Um, and so it, seem, it seems to indicate, through putting these passages together, that uh, demons tend to be more prominent in places where God's word and God's people are absent, the dry places, right? The places where God is not present or his blessings or his people are not there. This also seems to make implications of uh, stronger demons in some particular locations. And this would be consistent now if you, maybe you've heard stories or you've read biographies, right, of missionaries when they go to far off places where the gospel hasn't gone out and they face what seems almost surreal to you maybe, like all this demonic activity, very, very in your face kind of stuff. And you wonder, why is that that they're facing that there and I'm not facing that here? Um, that, I think there's a, there's a reason, part of that is that where God's word is absent or where there's closed countries or where there's a lack of God's people, there's a lot more demonic activity and influence. And I'll share with you uh, in a little bit here some of my own experiences going to, to uh, inner city Los Angeles and facing a lot of that stuff too that I've never faced in my life till I was there. Um, so we should conclude that these titles now, through all these I've given you, are not... Um, they are a sample, I would say, and not an exhaustive list, right? Demons are very active in lots of different areas and lots of different ways. But this is just some of the, the sampling of what we find uh, in Scripture. They have many more roles and activities uh, that they play. Uh, again, accurate list, but not exhaustive. Okay? Any questions on that? All right. Demonic strategies. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time and also next week as well. So the Bible is replete with teaching on how Satan and his demons go about trying to stop uh, the mission of God and keep the gospel from going forward. We mentioned this last time, it's, it's good to be reminded of this, is that though Satan and, and his demons may have enjoyment in causing you pain, right, or causing disruptions in your life, um, understand that their main objective is not just to make your life miserable, their main objective is to hinder the gospel from going forward and from God using you to get that gospel forward, right? That's the overall plan and activity. When we talk about all these activities, that's ultimately the, the source behind it um, and what's going on. Okay, so let's look at uh, letter A there. Hinder the mission. That's why I'll keep putting that title in there. Hinder the mission of God, the gospel going forward throughout all the earth uh, through doubt. Our first one we'll look at, through doubt. We find this in Ephesians 6. Verse 16, and it says here that, that Satan and his demons obviously take, it says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the idea, and we'll look at this in detail in our last class. We'll go through Ephesians 6 together. What we find here, extinguishing the flaming darts of the evil ones with your shield of faith implies that the darts coming at you are attacks on your faith, right? That they're, they're attacks of doubt uh, coming at you. Um, and I'm convinced that this is one of the, the greatest tactics that Satan will use, is to come at you with, with doubt. Lots of different things to doubt, um, specifically about God. And so it's not so much as it is doubting your salvation, which can be true, as much as it is doubting things about God that hinder you from moving forward. Because if you feel hopeless, and you feel lost, and you feel that God's not active, and you've lost sight of who God is, you're not a very effective missionary, right? You're not going to be giving hope to anybody else. You know, yourself don't feel it, right? And so let's look at a few of these. Um, number one, doubt God's goodness. Now we find doubting God's goodness all the way back into Genesis 3. So let's look at that together. We find that uh, at the beginning here. The serpent, again, more crafty than the other beasts of the field. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That was an additional. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise. She took it, ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I was always, always interested in reading that passage going, Adam, what are you doing, man? You're just hanging out there? I mean, he was there the whole time watching this happen. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we notice his, his temptations, by the way, include um, uh, temptations based on appetite and desire. You see that in the language? It would look good to the eyes and all of those kind of things. Yes? I was curious if you uh, have thoughts on uh, how they didn't know before this that they were naked. Uh, some people feel that uh, maybe being in close contact with God all that time, mm -hmm. that the kind of glory was kind of on them, and they really couldn't see that. Their nakedness until yeah, I mean, I can't. No, I mean, I can't specifically speak to that. Other than than we mentioned in the sermon a few weeks ago, that it, the inward shame propelled them to look out, feel outward shame. I think it's probably the best answer to that. There's some they had never felt inward shame, so there was no sense of outward shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, when sinner in the world, they they felt that internal shame, which caused them to feel it externally and have to cover up um, from each other, even uh, even though it was never an issue before, right? So I think it's a, it implies a lack of trust. Um, somehow I'm vulnerable now. Never felt vulnerability. Think about that. They never felt before sin fell came in the world. There was no vulnerability even. Had no reason to be vulnerable. It was, it was having no reason to. So, um, but here we find that uh, the temptation really is going after again that basically God's not good, right? God is holding out on you, Eve. He knows things that he doesn't want you to know. He has things he doesn't want you to experience. And so God, so God is holding out on you. Um, this is a similar temptation in, in, in many ways of things like God is going to keep you in this stage of life. He doesn't have any plans for you, right? He's holding out on you. Um, we always try to get us to believe that God just isn't as good as he says he is, right? That's one of the main elements of going after us and that element of, of doubt. Um, number two, doubt God's sufficiency. Doubt God's sufficiency. We see this in 1 Chronicles 21. Uh, 1 and 2, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number... Israel. So David said to, the, to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Bathsheba uh, to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. Um, Satan goes after David to basically the idea is to rely, to number was to kind of rely on his own military strength, right? Give me a number, I don't know how many we have, and I'll make my judgment based on how many numbers we have. I'm not going to trust in God, right? I'm going to trust in my own self-sufficiency and my own military tactics. I need to know how many we have so I can plan this out. So you see him forgetting or doubting God's sufficiency and relying on his own self-sufficiency is why he was doing that. And so we find this, uh, this lie showing up many times. Um, you, know, you need to do things on your own. The whole lie of God helps those who help themselves, right? Uh, if you don't do this for yourself, it'll never happen. And so all those kind of lies that kind of be thrown out is really a doubt to doubt God's sufficiency and to rely on your own self-sufficiency. That's a major tactic uh, of Satan and his demons. Number three, uh, doubt God's love. Now here we find, and we'll, we'll, we'll take a little bit of time in Luke 4, uh, we find um, three different ways that, that Satan goes after uh, Jesus in Luke 4. Uh, the first one is really to doubt God's love. Uh, we see here that Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit to the wilderness for a day, is being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. 
And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now the question when we get to this passage we have to ask is, why is it wrong for Jesus to eat after six weeks of eating nothing, right? And, and, and by the way, turning stones to bread is not unlike what he does in John 2 by turning water into wine, right? That's not an not uncommon miracle or something that was off limits for him. Uh, why is it a temptation to sin now? And that's important to get to kind of the temptation of what is going on. The answer lies in what is being implied, okay, in the devil's statements. Very subtle, which is, again, this is all part of his activity, right? It's very subtle in that way. Um, and basically the idea is that the Father doesn't really care for you, Jesus, right? He doesn't really love you like he said. He just said a little while ago in the previous passage in Luke 3, this is my what? Beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Oh, well, it doesn't look how he's very well pleased with you right now. You don't look like a beloved son. Look at you. you know, I can count your ribs like you're starving out here. He won't even feed you. You see, the, he's tempting him to doubt God's, God's love, the Father's love for him. And, you know, can't, the, can't the Father give you a little bit of bread? Um, you know, wasn't, it, wasn't it just 30 years ago you had the adoration of angels, right? I know you're supposed to condescend, but isn't, haven't you had enough? When's it going to end? And he probably relays all the things that have happened to him even thus far. And so he's kind of going after him to basically said, you know, Jesus, no one really cares for your soul, but I do, right? I care about you, you know. Um, here's, why, don't you, why, don't you, why don't you feed yourself? You're hungry, right? You see, it sounds really good, in a, if I mean, but, but it's a temptation really to doubt that God's love for him is, is, is actually there. Um, he was basically telling Jesus to take things into his own hands, meet his own needs, because clearly the Father wasn't going to do it, right? That's what he's implying. Um, he's just all talk and no substance, and so Jesus needed to stop relying on the Father and the Holy Spirit and take matters into his own hands. And again, if Jesus would have done so, Satan would have shattered the mission of God because he would have attacked the very core of who God is, right? First John 4, 8, 4, 8 says God is love, right? He's going after that very relationship. That's, what, that's his very first tactic of Jesus is to break that relationship because he can break up Father, Son, Holy Spirit in loving union and commitment to another, then everything else just falls apart, right? That's the very center of the universe right there. And so that's his first temptation, is to go after the very core of God in terms of love, that the Father doesn't love the Son, and he's basically abandoned him and left him alone. Uh, this same temptation comes to us. Uh, it's subtle, but its temptation is to doubt God's love. And on the flip side, the opposite is kind of embrace, in our culture, embrace entitlement, right, is the other side. Um, are you sure God really cares about you? Are you sure he wants you, you know, involved? And maybe, but does, are you sure he wants you in a local church? I mean, you see how broken those people are and messed up they are? I mean, does he really want you there? Uh, wouldn't you be better off alone? It doesn't look like he cares for you at this point in your life. Doesn't, don't you know he's sovereign? I mean, that's the thing. He'll throw passages at you, right? So he does Jesus. Quote scripture to him. Um, he could change things, you know. It doesn't seem like your Christian family is all that helpful. Doesn't seem like anyone else is really trying to serve you. Uh, you. You deserve better. You should serve yourself. You should take things and matters into your own hands. And so it's very interesting as you examine this temptation, even the whole thing. It involves using God-given ability, right? Jesus could change stones to bread um, to get something readily available. Obviously, he's in the desert. <coughs> desert wasn't woods, right? It was. It was. It was. A, it wasn't trees. It was rocks. Stones were everywhere, so it was readily available to him. For something very necessary, which is food, or you'll die, right? This, this is a perfect storm of entitlement, ability, availability, and necessity. And it all is an attack on God's love um, for you, right? 
You say, how does that work? So there's a lot of ways this works out. You have, um, you find it, let me talk about just work for a moment. And I'm going to just use from my experience um, working, working in Hollywood and working with especially young men and, you know, always getting the, the latest, greatest job and having to come up and they're just making these rash decisions without thinking through stuff. Um, so you have the ability to work, a job comes up, you need to put food on the table for the family. So you just, you just uproot the family immediately and, uh, and, you, and you go and take it and whatever comes along with it. Uh, I've seen people ruin their lives and their families by being foolish, not considering things like, hey, is there a good church in that city I'm moving to? Is there a place where I can get plugged into? It's always, ah, there'll be something, I'll find something, right? Very low on the priority list. Um, do you ask the question is, how will this affect my children? Is the work that I will be doing ethical? Is it actually a job that I should be doing, right? Um, no, instead, they feel entitled and they just go for it. The first day it comes up, I deserve this, and so they just take it. And again, it's a, what it is, a very subtle temptation to doubt and question God's love uh, for them and his plan in their life. Um, let's look at um, another one here. We find uh, uh, number four, doubt God's wisdom. When I send you the notes, you'll find I've, re I've written a lot more on that subject, but I'll, I'll let you just read that later. Um, doubt God's wisdom. Uh, this is uh, continuing on in Luke uh, chapter 4. We find verses 5 and 8 here, uh, through 8. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth uh, in the moment of time and said to him, he said uh, to him, you, uh, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give to, it to him who I will. If, if you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So here we find Satan, and I don't know if it's like Aladdin on the magic carpet ride where he kind of presents, you know, shows the glories of the kingdoms. I'm not sure quite how this happened, but nonetheless, he paraded before him the glories of Egypt and the glories of Greece and all the different kingdoms of the world at the time. Um, you can imagine all of those going by. And he basically says, I'll give it all to you. I'll give it all to you right now. You see that? It, it's, 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 it's doubting God's wisdom. It's got doubting God's timing. I'll give it to you now. Jesus, I, I know that the Father's going to give you this stuff eventually. Again, he's, he's a very good student. Psalm 2 clearly states that all the nations will be given to you. But that's only after you suffer and die. I can give it to you by bypassing all of that, you see. I can give you, you'll go, it won't be hard. I'll just give it to you now. Just bow down before me and, and it'll all be yours. Uh, and so he's, he's going after him that way. Again, very, very, seems, sounds very loving, very noble. Um, Jesus will inherit the world um, after a cross and resurrection. Satan is offering to eliminate the suffering um, and basically making the father out to be a bad guy here, right? He's the bad guy. He, want, he wants you to suffer. You can have all this stuff without suffering. Um, we've heard this lie before. If God is so good, then why does he allow people to suffer, right? That's the old, old lie that comes that way. Um, that, that is what Satan is feeding Jesus here. He's saying if God was really wise, he would bypass the suffering and give you the good stuff he has planned for you right now. When you're tempted by this, um, to look at your life and your sufferings and throw them back on God like he, like he doesn't know what's going on, realize that Jesus here trusted the Father's love included, that included suffering. Okay? That's why he tells Satan, basically take a hike here, right? It, it does include suffering. He understood the plan of God, the wisdom of God. Yes, that's, that's going to be true, and that is a good thing, but in God's timing, in God's wisdom, he has a perfect plan laid out for when that will take place. So understand that God's wisdom and plan, I assure you, includes suffering. There will be hardship. Uh, don't, um, don't always take the road less, you know, the, the easy road. Um, don't take the one that always is, is easy. 
sometimes it involves suffering. An interesting thing on that subject is that people will say, like, well, you know, I know it should involve suffering. I'm a sinner. I know I've got some rough edges. I know, like James 1 says, you know, he's, he's basically refining me, First Peter 1, like a fire. He's kind of making me like Christ. I get that. But what about all the unnecessary suffering, right? All the stuff you look at and go, like, I don't think that had anything to do with my sanctification. Matter of fact, it made me bitter and angry, right? It went the other way. And uh, why, 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 what all about all that unnecessary suffering? And I found in, um, again, I always find stuff in C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis had a great illustration for this. I thought it was good. He talked about, um, imagine yourself living in a house. He said, God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, he says, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that job needed to be, needed to be done, so you're not surprised by it. You're like, yeah, that's, that makes sense. He's fixing that, fixing this. I get it. I need to be cleaned up here. I have some rough edges. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here and putting an extra floor in there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. You see, he's making you look like Jesus, not just a better version of you, right? And that's a, a great way to look at that. It's not unnecessary suffering. It feels like that. But he's building something completely different than your expectations were, right? And that's, there is no unnecessary suffering in God's plan in that. Yes? I was just going to say, I think when, when we're young Christians, we think, of, uh, we think that God will uh, keep us from any suffering. Mm-hmm. But as we grow in the Lord, and as we go through suffering, what we really learn is there's no way for us to really learn the real depths of the love of God without mm-hmm. going through the suffering because when we go through the suffering we find he goes with us right? and we understand then his love for us mm-hmm. in a way we can't understand if we don't go through Apart the from suffering it. Yeah, and when we, and which makes it interesting going back to our study on angels right? we talked about that, they don't know that They've never experienced that part. They've experienced the power of God like we've never experienced, right? Being able to see God create the world and speak things into existence and all of that. And the glories of God and God's presence and all that's wonderful that we ourselves currently cannot see or experience to that extent. But they don't get that part. They don't get to know God through the suffering and his presence through hardship, right? Mm-hmm. That we do. That's why I said it would be fun on New Earth is just to kind of exchange stories. Right? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you a little something about God that I know. And they can tell us a little stuff about God that, you know, that they know and experience. And they can, we can talk about those things. It's a fascinating thought in that way. Um, number five, uh, doubt God's word. Uh, we find, obviously, that's throughout this passage. But at the end of the passage, he took him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, I love this, Satan's always like, you know, I've been reading my Bible today, and I was doing my, my devotions in Psalm, you know, was it 90, what is this, uh, Psalm 90, uh, uh, I can't remember which, which psalm it is now. But I was doing my study in the psalms, you know, and since I, I'm a student of the Bible, I know the, and I know the Bible's all about you, Jesus. Can you imagine? This is probably what he's saying. I know the Bible's all about you, and I know that when it referenced angels catching David in the psalms there, that obviously he was replying. He was talking about you, right? I mean, he's very God-centered in his uh, theology of the Bible, right? And so as he says, it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That will end every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. So we find him almost going to the top of the temple, looking down beneath, seeing all the people down there, about 450, 500 feet below. And he sees all these people. And basically what he's, what he's tempting Jesus to do is, the, again, to, to not trust, to doubt God's word and what God's word said. 
and this is very close to the God's love, God's wisdom. These are all folded in together. But his idea of like, if you just jump off of here, we'll speed this process up. I mean, here you are, 30 years old. How many followers do you have? Uh, let me count. None. You know, like there's no one here. Um, you got maybe a few disciples with you right now. I mean, you've been here for 30 years. Obviously, this is a this is a slow process. You know, once you just jump off, the angels will catch you. Everyone will see it. The big wow effect, and now you'll have instant followers. All right, that's what he's he's tempting them to do something and bypass um, again, not trusting God's word that again involved involved a cross. And so, so we find this um, happening to him um, over and over again. Again, he left him an opportune time, came back uh, later on. And again, this is important. We we will be tempted to doubt God's word, and not necessarily doubt. As, when I say doubt God's word, not so much doubt as in its, its, its inerrancy or its inspiration, though that will definitely be temptations as well, as much as it's just to a, just a subtly doubt the accuracy um, of the promises of God, okay? Even twist, twist God's word to mean something different. Uh, that's why faith is so important, or as a passage in Hebrews, um, that uh, doesn't say without strength it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without vision, it's impossible to please God. Without service, it's impossible to please God. It's what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God wants you to trust his word. And Satan will try everything he can to get you not to trust it, right? And to go against it. All right? All right, let it be. Into the mission through deceit. So we saw doubt, and now we find, we find deceit. Okay? And so we find... Um, Satan obviously knows that you know if you're if you're a fish, you can't just dangle a hook out there and you're just going to bite the hook, right? He needs to bait it, he needs to bait it, hide it, and that's what we mean by this idea of deceit. And we find that he has declared war in this in this way. We find Revelation 12:9 again. He was uh, his angels were thrown down with him. He was he was um, thrown down to earth in the passage. I didn't. Verse 10, I did not include him there, uh, but he went and made war, declared war against those who. Who, uh, who, who follow Jesus, and, um, and so he's very much um, against us in that way. So a few ways this happens. First, um, just flat out lie. <laughs> uh, John eight forty four says when he lies, Jesus speaking about Satan, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. That's that going back to Genesis chapter 3. And so uh, this kind of blatant line is where you are tempted to believe it's, you know, it's... it's um, in situations and conflicts and problems, right? It's always someone else's fault, right? You may even say, like, well, I know I've got a percent of this problem, but my percentage is really low, right? Their percentage is really, really high. Um, they have a lot more to blame for this. Uh, this is also a lie you find in, uh, in just despair, you know? I've just gone too far, you know? I've fallen way too far down the rabbit hole to get back out of this thing. God's not going to welcome me back. Right? These are blatant lies in which, in which God is, obviously has said in Scripture, and if you're his, he's not letting you go. Right? But these are things that we're tempted to believe that we've gone too far from grace. Another one is uh, to distract. This is, uh, kind of call this kind of the wow effect element. Satan and his demons can use a very, uh, even supernatural things at times to kind of distract us from keeping the main thing the main thing. Here we have 2 Corinthians 11.3. Um, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion um, to Christ. So here we find um, trying to keep people distracted, um, led, led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Um, this is again, will even be, you'll be tempted to put good things and make them ultimate things, right? 
Um, and that's really the essence of what the Bible describes sin as. Sin is idolatry. It is making good things and turn them into ultimate things. Ultimate meaning, I must have these, right? Always think of Gollum and the ring, right? It's my precious. We have to have it. And, um, and that's kind of what happens, and that's the temptation he tries to bring. And usually it's not blatantly bad things. He throws in front of you going like, hey, you should go for this. It's more like, well, this is a really good thing. You should put a little more weight in this, a little bit more, invest a little bit more into this, give a little more time to this, and this thing becomes your ultimate thing that you really, in essence, must have, um, you know, in your life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his, the book I had you read there, one of the, the conversations there between Wormwood and uh, the, the demon there says, your, your, your business is to fix his attention, speaking of the believer, on what he called the stream. Teach him to call it real life. Don't let him ask what he means by real. <laughs> They find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home the, him the ordinariness of things. Just keep things common. Just keep things normal. Don't, don't, don't get him too, too obsessed uh, with things of God. Number three, impress. Again, this is that, that kind of wow effect. This is the supernatural stuff. This is false teachers, false doctrines. Um, we need to remember that the old, old Puritan phrase, not all that glitters is gold. Okay? because it looks shiny and pretty and, you know, fascinating. And, uh, you know, I see this all the time. You find, like, miraculous activities and stuff, and all of a sudden Christians are so gullible just to buy into whatever it is just because it was showy, because it looked fantastic. And, oh, it must be of God. Well, maybe. <laughs> but not necessarily, right? You need to be very careful on that, and that's what he's going after here. We find Second Thessalonians 2, 9 to 10, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all, all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception, those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Revelation 13, 13 through 14 says it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Right? Obviously it was done in front of people because that's what they want to see. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who fall, who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Um, and so this is kind of the, the wow effect of things that will, uh, activities that will take place. Number four, uh, condemn. Not only, not only seeks to deceive believers and keep them off mission, uh, and from keeping the main thing the main thing, he also seeks to distract even unbelievers so that they remain lost, right? To distract them from that. Um, and this is kind of the old statements of, you know, you can turn to Jesus when you get older, right? There'll be time. Don't do that stuff now. You know, live it, live it up um, while you're young. You only go around once, right? That's kind of the idea. We find uh, Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was shown the lake of fire and soul for where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. We find his ultimate end is there, and that his ultimate end is wanting to have others with him in that very, that very end. Letter C, here's a mission through distress and difficulty. Distress and difficulty. Again, the goal is with pain and suffering, it's not just pain and suffering as it is, but pain and suffering so as to hinder the gospel from going forward through you. Okay? So let's look at the first of all, let's look at pain. Uh, we find a um, Satan's demons seem to delight in this activity causing pain, physical disability. We find in the New Testament many times. Um, it hinders people at times in their ability to, to even behave and think rationally. We find people who are possessed, and, and we'll talk about that activity later on in our class, 
in the New Testament. One of the most common ones that come up when we talk about pain is Job, right? I won't read the whole thing here. I'll just put it up before you. Job, um, here we go. Job 1, 12 through 19. Uh, in that passage, um, you find that uh, God grants Satan permission, right, to, to bring pain uh, into Job's life. He messes with his house. He messes with his job. He messes with his possessions. He messes with his family. He uses nations. He uses people. He uses weather, right? He uses all those activities that Satan has opportunity to use to go after Job. Uh, we also see this um, in Job 2 when he goes after his health in Job 2, 7 through 9. Um, find him messing with, again, his health, find him messing with his marriage, right? And even that got, got a little shaky because the wife was like, won't you just curse God and die, right? Um, his friends even are turned on him, right? And that had to be some demonic activity going on there even. To have his friends completely turned on him as well. In the New Testament, you find demons causing people to be blind, mute, epileptic seizures, back pain, arthritis, even paral uh, being paralyzed as well. Um, Mark 5 Verses 2 through 5. It says, when Jesus has stepped out of the boat. By the way, in that boat, when he's in the storm, whole footnote on this. When he's out in the storm, remember, and he calms the sea and he rebukes the storm. It's the name of the word. You know, the word rebuke is only reserved for demonic activity. Whenever Jesus used that word, it was always connected to demonic activity. That most likely that storm was even dem demonic in its source or in behind it. So he stepped out of the boat. Immediately there met with him at the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. We'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. A very sad <coughs> picture, but you find kind of demonic activity even going on um, in that person's life. We find Luke 9, <coughs> verse 39, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him. So he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. One other passage of many, Matthew 17, 15. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures, and he suffers terribly, for often he, gets, he falls into the fire and often into the water. And the text goes on to describe it, Satan had to rebuke a demon that was involved in this activity. And so these passages speak here of this, again, this young, even this young boy here being seized uh, in that way. And so you find that throughout the New Testament, you read the Gospels and you find this kind of thing happening over and over again, right? You see all this demonic activity affecting health, affecting, um, causing pain in many ways. Just as a, uh, a side note, um, from my own personal experience, uh, I told you when we first started this course that when, we, when I got into the topic of, of Satan and demons and spiritual warfare, I thought little to nothing of it. Uh, I knew I mean, theologically or biblically, I was like, yeah, it exists, but whatever. You know, I mean, I didn't just really think much of it. And then when I moved to inner city Los Angeles and started planting churches, um, I, it became really real. Um, it became something that I actually thought a lot about. Um, it's part of why I did this course, kind of put all these things together and make sense of all the stuff that was there. Um, just to give you a, a, some sample of a little bit of what went on, that none of this happened prior to I moved there. Here's what happened within our first three years of uh, planting a church. Now, again, if you don't know my story, we planted it in inner city Los Angeles in the Hollywood area. And it's 95% lost, okay? So it's a very, very dark place. It's actually also very broken. It's one of the top five poorest areas in the country. Contrary to the Golden Globes and things you see on television, it's a completely broken place. We had, with our first three years there, um, stuff that actually started happening. That actually, there were times you had to laugh at it because you're like, this is like way over the top stuff. It's like so obvious of what's happening. Um, 
we face as a family, um, I would just say bizarre diseases that no one could explain, right? And we kept having to go to doctors. We had over 100 doctor visits within that first year between the six of us going to all. We had 20 different specialists we had to see for various illnesses and things that went on. Um, four emergency room visits, three hospitalizations. Um, I would constantly walk around with severe chest pain. A lot of times, I'm, and again, I'm not saying this to, again, I've told you this, some of these stories before. I don't walk around experiencing all these things all the time. This is just some of the things that happened those first three years. I would lay in bed at night and wake up, and it was like someone was pressing down onto my chest where I couldn't breathe on multiple occasions. Crazy dreams and um, um, hard ones that you, I can't even talk about. Them. But there's dreams that I would have of my, my children dying, my wife dying, like just, just things that were constantly um, going on there as well. Um, I ended up having um, uh, kidney failure. I had, they found 20, 20 polyps in my head. Um, massive car accident that my, my children were completely saved from that, but um, I, was, I was put in the hospital for, for a few days for that. Um, my wife had over 200 migraines a year for the first three years, just constantly going on. This was just like a sampling of all the stuff that was happening. Um, my son Calvin was having night terrors. If you have a children ever have that, it's the most helpless thing you feel you can do. Just waking up in the middle of the night screaming. He's still asleep, but he can't, you can't calm him down, just kind of screaming at stuff. Uh, my son, Caveman, passed out at dinner time. Um, it fell over. It took him to the emergency room. He woke up and couldn't hear. And so he went, he went, um, um, they have no idea why. Um, couldn't hear, still can't hear his left ear, but just completely went where he couldn't, he couldn't hear anymore. Uh, again, went to those at their schools, um, having lockdowns at least twice a week. Lockdowns, we're not familiar with that. This is basically police activity going on around the school, and you got to lock it down, not let anybody in, anybody out. Um, be involved in school shootings where some of their uh, some of their fellow students got killed uh, in the school as they're running through the hallways. Um, this is all within the first just three years <laughs> that we were there. Um, I myself battled uh, severe depression at times with no explanation, just a real sense of just heaviness uh, about it. I remember when I first got there and I met with a guy that was um, had been doing ministry there for a long time. He had moved away. And I asked him to come back and just say, hey, can you help me out here in this, this place? And he got there. I remember meeting him that night about 10 o'clock because he drove me around from like about 10, 11 o'clock at night to about 3 a.m. just looking at all activity. He called it the underbelly tour of Hollywood, like what went on at nighttime. And, um, and he got out of his car. I remember when he stepped up and he's like, do you feel that? And I'm kind of like, what do you mean? He's like, do you feel that? I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, just the, the darkness and like the weight. He said, I've been, I've been gone a year. And it just when I step back into here, I just feel a completely different sense of weightiness that is around me. Um, we have, um, you know, it was, it was uh, uh, in the church, you know, over that first three years, we had over 100 people come to Christ in the first three years uh, that were baptized during that time. Um, and so it was all, that was all going on at the same time and all this stuff was going on, right? Again, as you find these, these parallels, um, the church, we had leadership backlash. We had, we had some, one of the churches kind of break apart, um, had a guy show up at church with a gun. Uh, these are all just, again, just samples. I was actually, funny enough, it was uh, Snoop Dogg's bodyguard, if that makes any difference, you know who that is or not, um, came to church and, uh, with a gun and um, ended up killing someone that night. And so he was apparently in jail at that point. But uh, I remember one point in the back of the, the church, he was standing right in the middle of the aisleway. And he was kind of mad at what I was saying, but he was... Was standing staring me down. I had no idea I had a gun at the time. Um, had had people walk away from the faith. Had people help people work through death, suicide, murder, drugs, uh, countless addictions, poverty, uh, anorexia, bulimia, cutting, 
um, abandonment, divorce, miscarriages, abortion, homosexuality, persecution, threats to their lives, abuse, criminality, STDs, rape, molestation. That was all stuff I had to deal with the first three years. I mean, it was a broken, broken place. And Satan and his demons were very active, and it was no wonder why all that stuff um, was happening. Probably the, the, the most graphic stories I ever had was uh, two different events. One was I had one young man. <clears throat> he was a young man. He was, he, well, he was 40. He's a young man, right? Um, and uh, I had to rephrase that, and I think about it, because that was 10 years ago, and I'm thinking I was 30, and I thought he was old. Um, the, uh, but his... his uh, his name was Phil, and Phil had come to Christ, and he had this crazy background, uh, got baptized, was plugged into the church, he was part of our band, he was part of our band, made a lot of progress, came from a real drug addiction background. Uh, one night, I was in, it was one morning, I was at church that morning, and, um, and I was just walking up to preach when one of my other uh, pastors came up to the pulpit and whispered in my ear of what had happened, so they found Phil's body. And I'm like, what do you mean? They said, well, he's, he, he jumped out of his window. I'm like, what's going on? So I left, and I turned it over to him, and I went over to find him, and he was, and this is the way it works in L.A., because it's so chaotic. He walked over, he's still laying on the ground, and so he's laid out on the sidewalk in the front. The coroner's office shows up, the LAPD shows up, and um, all this is going on. And meanwhile, I got people from the church showing up who've never processed death, and they're seeing this, and so they're all falling apart. So I'm trying to, it's like being in the war zone. I got, I'm trying to help all of them. I'm trying to deal with, with Phil's parents, who are obviously broken and falling apart, and the LAPD is trying to get me information from me and trying to deal with all this stuff going on. And I remember when this was happening, I said, had two of my guys with me. I was kind of training up. One was the owner of the Chick-fil-A there in town. And I said, hey, run, run around the back, because this is the way it works out there. Go get some Clorox and clean the street, because they won't clean it for you. Uh, and I was just trying to clean it up just to, just to help, help the people that were living next door. And so they came back, and these two guys ran around the back, and a very reputable man came running back to me, and they were just pale as could be. And I was like, what? Did you find the Clorox? Like, what's going on? And they're like, no, we, we're not going up there. I'm like, what do you mean going up there? And he goes, there's something up there. And uh, so we went around the back of the building, and we saw, because he had jumped out his back window um, and had landed on the ground on his head, but then ran around to the front and then collapsed and died in the front of the, of the apartment. And we went in the back, up the window where he, where he jumped out. Uh, there was still blood on the window there in the cracks, and we, there was a creature it's the best that I can describe it. And again, this is not, a, I'm not, I'm not giving these things, this is a common thing for me, right? This is the one instance this happened. It was a creature of some sort in the window. And, um, and I was like, I'm like, that's just his dog. Then we had a dog. They're like, no, it's not his dog. And they point over there, and it's like, his dog is over there. Like, what the heck was that? So we went upstairs, and it was nothing. There was nothing there. And, um, and we found out from the, from the neighbors, they heard, when we t started asking what happened, because Phil was doing really well, and they said they heard, they heard him screaming, running, down, running, through his, his, um, running through his apartment, so they could hear him screaming through the next door, he was, like, he was just saying things like, no, no, Jesus does love me, you're lying to me, and he's like running around, and he said he was, he was screaming those kind of things, and he jumped out of his window. And so it was just like one of those crazy events, those kind of things happening, right? I had my wife happen... Um, on two different occasions, my wife had driving even some other girls in church down the street and having a person, at least the best way we can describe it, um, jump in front of her um, as she was driving by, jumped in front, and of course they swerved to miss and almost hit oncoming traffic and looked back and the person was gone, like they're no longer in existence. It happened twice to her um, in, in those situations. So, I mean, it's, it's just a very crazy, weird 
you know, place, but I think it's a, one of those places where, again, where the gospel is vacant and there's not a lot of activity there amongst God's people that you find demon activity kicking up a lot more visibly. I think this is why you read those missionary biographies. You find those kind of things happening in those places. Um, persecution. That's another one. Uh, demons are very much involved in the area of persecution. Uh, we find every day people, are fa- people who follow Jesus around the world are uh, seeking to make him known, facing persecution. Uh, many facing death or imprisonment. Uh, two weeks ago, news broke that, um, that research uh, came out that Christians are persecuted in more places around the globe today than any time in history. That's as of today. What's that? That's saying something. Yeah, but it's more, it's facing, the, it, the, the quote was that, um, yeah, persecuted more places around the globe than any time in history. The statistics of the article that came out it said this kind of thing happens every day around the world with over 90,000 Christians were martyred for their faith in 2016. 90,000. And some 60 million were prevented from practicing their faith through intimidation, forced conversions, bodily harm, or, or, or even death of loved ones as a result. This is what, this is what goes on. I know we live in a, almost a bubble, right, in our scenario. But this is the reality of most people who follow Christ around the world. This is the stuff that happens. And we, we shouldn't be shocked by that. I mean, Jesus said, um, John 14, 28 through 31, he speaks here that um, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before, it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I don't want to talk much with you, for the ruler of this world, that is Satan, is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. In this context, Jesus is preparing his disciples, right, for his, his departure. He talks a lot about the Holy Spirit coming and all those things. He ends, his, ends this chapter 14 through 16 with this statement. And I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, right? Take heart, I have overcome the world. It's going to happen, right? That's what he's saying. It is going to be difficult. Um, you find in, um, in Revelation 2... You find Satan active even there, going after his uh, Jesus follower, Revelation 2, 9 through 10. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews that are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear that you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You'll be tested, and for ten days you'll, be, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I, w- I will give you the crown of life, and so we find Jesus telling them that the heat is coming. Actually, interesting enough, the synagogue of Satan is not a satanic cult as much as it is a. It was a synagogue. It was Jewish people, but it was inspired, and their their synagogue was because they were they were rejecting Christ was inspired again by satanic activity. Um, again, we shouldn't be surprised at this. This is uh, going back to this passage in Revelation twelve seventeen. He became furious, went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He has declared war on us. Persecution is part of that war. Um, right? Any questions? All right. Letter D. His mission through destruction and death. Right? Destruction and death. He will bite, claw, kick, scream, kill if possible. To stop the mission of gathering more worshipers to make much of Jesus. Remember John 4 said the Father seeking worshipers. And uh, you say, why is he so adamant against that? Because that's what he wanted. Remember back to our, our passages we looked at in Isaiah 14 and other passages that he wanted that glory. He wanted that praise. 
Um, and so he wanted it for himself, and he's been consumed by that desire. And, uh, and C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, if you've not read that one, that's my favorite Lewis book of all. Um, and in that book, he, he gives the kind of picture, basically, that, that people are, it's kind of written like screw tape letters in that way, but it's, it's, um, it's basically describing how people's idols, people's thing they hold on to, even in, even in hell, becomes such a consuming desire to them that eventually they even lose themselves become so consumed in the idol, so consumed in the things that they want, that they forget even who they are in many ways. And that's kind of Satan. He's kind of so consumed with this glory, so consumed with the praise, that he is out to attack and destroy anything that would uh, go against that. 1 Peter 5.8 gives a little description here. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we find... Satan is, is sneaking and looking for the most effective means to take down the mission, and really God's chosen instrument for getting the mission going forward is what? The local church, right? And so um, he's trying to get them afraid. This is the roaring, right? He's trying to get them afraid, get them running. And by running, it means like it would scare them enough to, to isolate themselves. Um, and when they do that, they lose the power of the local church and the community. This makes them vulnerable. Um, to further attack by Satan demons by getting people isolated. If he can destroy the local church and get people jaded and going off by themselves, I told you that the whole, you know, National Geographic, you know, the lion comes and attacks the, 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 the caribou. Again, I always get those mixed up. I don't know if they're on the same continent or not. But some a yummy creature that he wants. And um, I always say caribou. I don't know why. But, um, but you know, he attacks the herd, right? And all of a sudden, the bison, whatever they are, and they, they take off running, and always like the, there's always one. Did that just make it worse? I just give another one. Water buffalo. Water buffalo. Thank you. That's what I needed. Um, lion attacks the water buffalo. Thank you. Uh, geography's not my not my thing. All right. So, um, so yeah, they they attack them right, and they all spread out. They normally the group stays together, but there's always the one or two that gets off from the herd. That's who they attack. That's their whole goal. That's exactly the image that Peter gets here. If I can get, if I can get people away from the body, away from the, the body of Christ and outside the church and running off by themselves, they become vulnerable to attack. And that's his tactic of trying to do that among us. As I said, in this passage, if you read 1 Peter, it's, it's, it should stand out. It should like have lights connected to this verse, right? Because the whole book is like everything's, everything's in the plural. Everything is all about doing things together, a community. It's beautiful descriptions of the local church in First Peter uh, throughout the letter. And here he changes his vocabulary from singular you to, I mean, from plural you to singular. And he says here again, looking for someone to devour. Singular. That's a, that stands out in this book because it's the first one he's used. Singular, uh, he's used there. And so that's his tactic to try to get us isolated and apart. Think about the New Testament. He did this, right? Where was Judas when he decided to turn on Jesus? He was alone. He was standing before, you know, the Sanhedrin and the others trying to work out a deal, right? He was all by himself when these things were happening. Um, you find in uh, Luke 22, you find Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. Um, we find uh, the same happening to Peter, right? He says here that uh, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke Jesus, right? <laughs> Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And again, this act is presumption, you know, I'm, I'm going to prevent any pain from happening to you, right? <coughs> and, and Jesus had to rebuke him, and his rebuke was, get behind me, what? Satan. Isn't it interesting? Um, you're preventing the work of God here. 
And so we find later on in the Gospels, we saw in John, Peter is, when Peter flat out denies Jesus, the rooster crows, right, where is he? He is alone. Right? He's, not, he's not with the followers of Jesus. He's not with any of them. John's in there close, but he's all by himself out there by a fire, right, all by himself. You find this kind of characteristic of aloneness and detachment uh, from the people of God where Satan really hones in on, on that particular person, which again speaks to the value and the worth and the importance of, of the local church. Uh, even in the early church, we find uh, one of the first activities explicitly said of Satan, we find in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, again, totally fine, but they kept back uh, for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the, at the feet. In other words, there was a sense of uh, wanting to sh be showy and show, like, here's what I've sold, here's what I've done, here's my contribution, and to keep some of that, some of that back. Um, we find that... Uh, that they end up dying in the process and get rebuked for that as, uh, as satanic activity. Uh, we find First Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 through 18, we find uh, St. Constantly, after Paul, we can go back and read Acts and find that this, this verse seems to imply the uh, times where Satan was constantly hindering him uh, from going to places. And a lot, you can imagine a lot of the elements that were going on uh, in all those passages in Acts were, were connected to demonic activity. We even find, um, interesting enough, with that same passage, with the same book of Acts, we find actually, remember Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 had a rift? Remember it went separate ways? You can imagine that was again part of Satan's activity to try to split up. Um, God ended up using that, as he always tends to do in, the, in, in those situations. Uh, we find um, uh, in Satan using death as an instrument to hinder the mission, yes, he spared Job's life, but don't take that as like, well, that's how it always is. That was for Job. Doesn't mean he, he doesn't have that permission. Um, we do find in John 10.10 10, that he is, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to have life and have it abundantly. Uh, we find Hebrews 2.14-15. It's therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So he has some sort of influence and power in the realm of death deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay? Alright, letter E. Um, hinder the mission through denouncement and despair. Once Satan um, knows that Jesus has redeemed you and brought you to be with his own blood, he knows that he can't get you to abandon the faith, uh, but he still knows you're a sinner and can prey upon that. Uh, if he can get you, again, to, to not believe in the grace of God, to get you to wallow in shame and guilt, that, again, if you feel hopeless, you're not going to be one very apt to go giving other people hope, right? And so, um, and so we find that, that happening um, by Satan's activity uh, that, with that going on. Again, he wants to get, get our eyes off the gospel and onto, onto our own performance or lack thereof. And the more we can focus on our lack of performance, Instead of Jesus' performance, the more he's got exactly what he wants in terms of us feeling our own guilt and shame. Uh, there's true guilt brought on by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. That's true guilt. I, I, would, I would dare say there's probably a lot of false guilt in your life. There's things you feel guilty for that actually go back to Scripture you probably shouldn't be, right? And there is a sense of false guilt, and that's the thing, discerning what's true guilt, what's false. Well, true is connected to the, to the Word of God through the Spirit of God. False is disconnected from that. And so he preys upon those elements. And using that, um, another way to, to kind of get his eyes off, uh, get our eyes off of uh, off the Lord is to accuse us. We find this activity going on uh, in Job chapter 1. We'll skip this quote. 
Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, again we find that uh, um, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So here we find the accusation of Satan. We also find it here in Job 2, 4 through 5, skin for skin. All a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Revelation 12.10 calls him here that he, he's, he's been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Constantly flinging accusations, not just to God, but even to, to us. Again, to get us to forget the gospel, to get us to, to get our eyes off of the power that is in the cross, the power that's in the grace of God, and to focus, again, not on Jesus' performance, but ours or lack thereof. And again, if you have that focus and have us look at that and wallow in that, we become ineffective for the mission of God. That's why the grace of God is so important uh, to focus in on. We find um, John Bunyan, there's a great description of his testimony of how he came to Christ, but this is a great picture. He said, one day... I was passing the field, the sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought with all I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there I say is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. It's a beautiful picture. It's like he, he can never say that about me, because all he has to do is look at Jesus at the right hand. He's like, yep, he's got righteousness, it's right here. He said, I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loose from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. Right? That, that picture of his righteousness being there and not here. Right? God, my righteousness is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon Jesus. And the more I focus on my own, the more I get caught up into, into um, again, that guilt and shame that the cross is taken care of. Um, we find in, um, uh, in the Gospels, we find Satan going after Peter, again, trying to get him to quit and give up. Uh, we saw that in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Satan demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. I prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we find Satan's trying to go after, trying to go after Peter to get him to fall, to get him to to, to not return. Um, but we we flip the Bible over and we go to the Book of Acts and we find Peter, you know, has has been transformed. Peter has been um, brought back close to God, remembering the grace of God. Again, one of the beautiful pictures of this, um, as Bunyan had there, is also in Zechariah three. 1 through 5, this is the story, remember Joshua the high priest in filthy garments, he's standing there, uh, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen to rebuke you, isn't this a, a brand plucked from the fire? It says, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, I will clothe you in pure, pure vestments. And I said, let him put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord, which by the way is pre-incarnate Christ, was standing by. You see, Jesus defends you, not in the way you may think though. He doesn't defend you to Satan by, by arguing with him, like, well, they're not quite that bad. He probably agrees with him. 
Um, but he doesn't do that because he doesn't defend you. He defends you with him, right? He defends you with his righteousness. He doesn't make excuses for us and be like, well, they're really trying, you know? He doesn't do that. He just, he's not there. He's not there spinning righteousness, right? He doesn't have to spin it and make it look better. It's him, right? That's what he argues is his own righteousness that we have by faith in him. That's why First John 2, 1 calls Jesus Christ our advocate, Jesus Christ the, the righteous. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? I said this a few weeks ago, but God's on the other side of the trash of sin, waiting for you to dig your way through to find him again. Like, he's on this side of the trash, right? That's where he's at. And that's something that Satan always, if he can get you again, wallowing in that guilt and shame and forgetting the grace of God that is there for you, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and he's got you where he wants you, because that's going to hinder you from moving forward and hinder you from getting the gospel out. All right? Uh, letter F. Hinder the mission through discord. Again, I've got more stuff in the notes I'll send to you. Um, Satan's demons will infiltrate the church and do everything they can to keep the collective body of Christ consumed uh, with anything but the gospel, right? Inner turmoil is one of his favorite things to get. Uh, we know Satan is active in the early church. I know he's active in the church because if you look at the descriptions and revelation of the seven churches, you find him explicitly named in four out of the seven, which just shows us there of his activity going on uh, within those passages. Here's, uh, here's a few of them. Here we find, uh, we read this one earlier, Revelation 2, 9 through 10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, he says, speaking to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2, chapter two verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Right? He says, um, uh, Yehovah asked my name, and you did not deny my, my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Chapter 2, verse 24, Thyatira, don't hold to this teaching, who, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast in what you have until I come. Another one, Revelation 3.9, I'll make those, who, make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so what ways does he try to divide the church? Well, we find some passages of scripture that give us, again, doesn't mean it's an exhaustive list, as if these are only tactics he has, but we do find some interesting ones in scripture. Uh, how, does, how does he attack the local church specifically? Lack of forgiveness. Lack of forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2, um, 5 through 11. Um, I got the wrong passage at the bottom. It's supposed to be uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. It says, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the t context here is back in uh, 1 Corinthians, that they were to discipline this, this man in the church who refused to repent. Well, by the time 2 Corinthians is written, he, he repented, and he wanted to be restored in the church out of a, like a good intention of wanting to maintain the purity of the church, refused to bring him back, refused to forgive him. And so Paul is writing here to tell him to do that. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that, that I, I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake of, uh, in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. So there, Paul connects some satanic activity in this event. 
right? What's going on? This lack of receiving a brother back and lack of receiving and extending grace and forgiveness to them. Again, twisting Satan here, as he always did, seemed to probably twist a good intention, right? Oh, we're, we're trying to do what the Bible says. We're trying to maintain purity. Well, they repented. He welcomed them back, right? Um, and so we find that, obviously, if this didn't happen, this would crush this person. Um, and again, get them isolated, which is, not, which is what God does not desire. Satan will tempt you to be unforgiving and to be hard-hearted to those who have betrayed you. Right? We've all experienced that to some extent or another, some more severe than others. Uh, we feel that. We've experienced that. And Satan will, will love to just get right into that and to keep that separation and keep that bitterness holding on. Or maybe even giving what I call a worldly forgiveness, which is like, yeah, I forgive you, but. Right? You know that one? Where it's, it comes with stipulations and it... Uh, it, it uh, it's actually more of a grudge that you hold and keep bringing up the wrongs and things they did. You keep burying them over and over again. Maybe a spouse, right? You just keep burying them for the same thing. You bring it up all the time. You haven't really forgiven them. Um, true forgiveness is, again, you agree not to bring it up to them. You agree not to bring it up to others. And you agree not to bring it up to yourself. It doesn't mean it's not a fight that you do. Um, but that's what true forgiveness means. Um, we find in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. He keeps... No record of wrongs. And so we need the, the gospel to help us to be forgiving people. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another <coughs> as God in Christ forgave you. Right? So think about that. I mean, that's why the gospel is so important. God doesn't hold your sin over your head. right? Uh, he's cast it behind his back. Uh, he doesn't punish you for it because he already condemned Jesus for it. It would be unjust to punish the same sin twice um, but true forgiveness will be risky right it will be risky uh, it will be hard it will be labor but it's something we must must learn to do um, C.S. Lewis again said the following to love it all is to be vulnerable love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken if you want to make it make sure of keeping it intact you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries avoid all entanglements <coughs> Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. In that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Right? That's your other choice. Choose not to forgive. That's what happens to the soul. It happens to the heart. It grows hard. Another one we find is uh, anger and bitterness. Um, this is a very similar tactic where Satan is trying to get you offended and try to get you to believe things that are not true within a local church. Um, he wants you to turn um, from the reality of, of a forgiven sinner to a righteous judge, right? That's the tactic. Turn from a forgiven sinner to a righteous judge. You know how things work. You know how things should be done. Uh, and you start judging the thoughts and intents of people's hearts. Um, Lewis put this in his, in his book that I had you read. He said, when two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Uh, work on that. <laughs> Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will, he will not notice the Im immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. Uh, as he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. Right? This is basically the idea of like in the relationship where right, you just learn to take things personally. Like, well, uh, apparently the, the crazy idea that somehow my spouse woke up this day, I always tell them when I do premarital counseling, like, just imagine it's not personal. Always remember that phrase. It's just not personal. 
I don't believe your spouse is going to wake up in the morning and go like, now how can I make their life miserable? Mm. I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this. Right? She's not laid out that way. It's not deliberate. But that's the way it feels, isn't it? It feels at times like it's deliberate, like they're coming at you, and they somehow concocted this plan to make life miserable for you, right? Um, they would be in the marriage if that was the case. Uh, Ephesians 4, 26-27, gives us a little insight into why this is so important that we resolve conflict and we don't become bitter and angry. It says, be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity is also a word uh, can be translated foothold, a way in, a wedge into the relationship. Um, again, it's, it's what Satan is looking for in your life, where your weaknesses are. Um, and here's how this, this, this kind of situation works, right? You get upset. You can't believe someone who is a Christian would do such a thing. Satan comes in and tempts you to, to self-righteousness. You shake your head and wonder how could they ever do such a thing? How could they ever be so so naive, etc. Right? We begin to become the righteous judge. We forget First Corinthians fifteen ten. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? And we start um, thinking that um, um, we we lose that the, the perspective that Satan has gone after. I mean, this is what he's wanting. He's wanting to get into that relationship, break that apart. That's the opportunity. Is letting that bitterness and anger. It kind of um, feeds on that. Number three is disappointment and disillusionment. One of Satan's prominent targets is, uh, is leaders within the local church. That shouldn't be shocking to us. Jesus said, if you strike the shepherd, what? The sheep will scatter, right? And so it shouldn't be, should be shocking. This is where uh, it's a good place for me to say this to you. Can you just always please pray for your church leadership? Because <laughs> it is onslaught. You know? it's these kind of things, uh, Satan understands that. So it's not easy. Uh, many times unbelievers in the world, and they talk about evangelicals, they have some connection to some fallen pastor somewhere, right? And there's always something of like, oh yeah, you're part of that group of those people. Um, again, it's, it's, it's when he understands when people get broken, even not just unbelievers, but within the church. Some people have been really jaded, maybe even yourself, by, by moral failure within the local church, right? And you kind of get jaded by the whole concept. You're like, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't think I can love the church. Right? You heard that phrase before? And so this is, again, Satan's tactic. Get you alone, get you isolated, get you out there apart from the local church, doubting whether God is, is really good in that way. There's a reason why First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, even describes not naming pastors too early. Even It says here, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That takes us back to our earlier passages we saw about the origin of Satan and his fall. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devils. There we have, this is a qualification of the, the elder, the pastor of the local church. And here we find two of them connected to satanic activity, demonic activity, going after them. That's why that uh, is so important. Um, another one we find, number four, is broken marriages. Uh, Satanists have a field day with this one these days. This is the first temptation, really, the core of what he went after Adam and Eve, right? It was to break them apart. I try to pit them against each other. Um, how does he do this to get people off mission? Um, it's real easy. You know, the old phrase, right? If mommy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? And, and I remember this in the midst of craziness in Hollywood, man. When Sarah and I were doing well, even though it was crazy and things were nuts and all this stuff was going on, I'd get up, in the middle of, you know, get up that morning and go like, I can face this, right? I know God's for me. My wife is for me. We're good, right? Life is good. But if we weren't doing well, we were in conflict, even though I knew God was with me, and maybe I felt like she was against me, I was crippled. 
right? It was really hard to move forward, really hard to, you feel like even like a hypocrite, right? You're trying to, uh, you need Jesus, but really, I, I really do too, right? You know, it's like you, I mean, you, it's really hard to move out when things in the marriage and things are broken in that way, and that's why that's so important. And we find him specifically, interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, we find his activity even around the topic of sex here. So do not deprive one another, that's speaking of sex, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Oh, I got the wrong reference. You're right. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And so Satan will try to get you to use um, sex or lack thereof as leverage uh, or as a means of payback. A spouse withholds sex, right, because of bitterness or anger and try to pay back for things that have been done. And so we find here that the sexual relationship struggling because Satan will gladly put another person, right, will gladly bring another person around and be like, well, my spouse not really showing me affection or attention. And next thing you know, here comes someone along the line who definitely will show you attention, right? And that's how it happens. You see this happen a lot. And so this is part of his kind of tactic in that way. And just the point being, in marriage, it's not something to play around with, especially in the, in the area of sex. It's not something that's just like a sidebar conversation. It's a very important conversation to have and to be, and to be in connection with, us, with your spouse. Um, lastly, number five, and we'll end with this, uh, discontent and gossip, right? Discontent and gossip. Um, we find this, um, this concept, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15, Specifically speaking of singles here, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship is light with darkness. But of course, Christ with Belial, that's a, a term for Satan, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is, um, this is kind of going after that whole idea, because chapter 7 is going to speak a lot about singleness in the following chapter in 2 Corinthians, that um, God goes out again, a God-given desire for, for intimacy and connection. He'll tempt people to become discontent with that, short-circuit the process. I've seen this happen, especially in Hollywood. These singles, I mean, these ladies, all of a sudden a guy comes along and, you know, he's, he's showing attention. They don't ask the questions, like, is he a believer, first of all? And, like, truly, not just in name only, not just saying that. Is he connected to the local church? Is he accountable to other men? Like, asking important questions. Um, have the, the guys come along be like the first girl that comes by they're like oh man she's hot like we well, should get married I'm like so is hell like that's not a good idea right um, you should you should investigate you should investigate this right you should ask sorry, you should ask important questions and uh, that's it for tonight no um you find in first uh, Timothy uh, 5 11 through 15 we find this is the context of widows even and we find that some have already strayed after Satan, it says here, um, and kind of gone out, even the context of being on uh, busybodies and gossips, um, and he's tempting them even as widows. Isn't it crazy? He's, he, he didn't give up on that. Here's someone who lost their spouse. <coughs> someone lost their spouse, and he's going after them too, right? And so he's, he's constantly uh, trying to find ways to get into and break apart their local church through all these different means. All right? Any final questions? Great. We'll pick up uh, letter G there next week. Uh, and a few more following that. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to be together. Uh, Lord, uh, Satan's strategies are, are all over Scripture. Lord, we admit we need your protection. Uh, we need your, um, uh, your word to be dwelling deep into our souls so that, God, we know, we know how to answer uh, the temptations that come at us. They can sometimes be overt, sometimes very subtle. And, God, I pray that uh, you would strengthen um, these guys and help them to, to fight the good fight of faith and to seek to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.